Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know what I want? Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. You're joining us shortly, well, immediately after the Raptors lost to the Brooklyn Nets. Joining me, uh, a dear friend of mine, one of the better ones that I've ever made, a man who I appreciate, a man who I revere in some respects, and just uh, tolerate in others, I suppose. Uh, Louis Satsman, I think we were going to say that you were going to do part of your uh, introduction today. So what do you have for us? What are your priors? My priors, uh, you can find my work at 538, other places uh, these days, just keeping Raptors Republic, uh, you know, just shining the the incredible work that other people are putting out. It's been great. I mean, you and your podcasts are obviously among the best in the entire industry, but ours has been so good, so much writing, video. It's uh, It's been really cool to be a part of. Popping off, you at the helm, leading the charge. At least that's what you said to me. Uh, off off the live you were saying wow this <laughs> this place under my direction has really it's really starting to reach heights i never thought and and <laughs> certainly heights that blake couldn't take it to if if i'm certainly I yeah if you'd that. caught me if the hot mic had been recording i would have said some egregious things but uh fortunately not well egregious to the people who aren't in the know of, of course you're absolutely <laughs> correct uh okay first thing i want to talk about we just came off a game where the raptors lost the brooklyn nets and this is like a bit, you know, captured in the moment, of course, but this podcast comes out tomorrow and people will probably still be talking about it. Uh, helping off the corner, the Raptors, a team that are, I think are third in opponent turnover percentage. They are first in transition frequency and they also uh, probably pay less attention to the center position than most teams, the NBA over and the center position, obviously is synonymous with rim contests and uh, altering shots at the bucket. You know, that like it doesn't always have to be, but that's kind of the idea. And so we have a team that helps off the corner and gives up corner threes. This has been their what modus operandi. Am I using that correctly? That's, that's what they've wanted to do. That's their defensive ethos for quite some time. But people are hand-wringing about it. So I'd like to know what your thoughts are on the helping off the corner. So... I, I understand the pros and the cons, and I think it speaks to a really interesting philosophy um, in that, well, first I'll start about the pros and cons, then we'll get to the philosophy. But the idea is that at its best, you can contest those threes. You can leave them open and get there because you have Pascal Siakam, Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi. I mean, Siakam and Ananobi both, both block jumpers. Um, from along the baseline in this game. And so even when they leave something open, if they're at their best, doesn't have to be open. Uh, but 
as so often happens, they are not always at their best. Nobody is always at their best. Um, Toronto allowed a, a huge number of corner threes. 16% of Brooklyn's field goal attempts were corner threes. That's like an outrageous number of attempts. Um, and they shot really well in them, almost 50%. Like that is almost the game in a nutshell right there. If you allow so many corner threes, you allow someone to shoot, shoot well, that's game. Uh, a lot of that was uh, the first rotation was good, but you know you didn't have the second half of the X out or guys were just way too focused on tagging the roller, um, which we covered in minute basketball quite recently. And so, you know, at your best, you can take everything away at your worst, you give up easy points. And then the philosophy is how often can you be at your best? I find it interesting because if Toronto is going to their pl the playoffs, I mean, they're not a team that's going to win unless they're at their best anyway. So why not make your best this world altering defense and if you don't reach it you don't reach it because you're not going to win regardless i think it's a really interesting theory um not successful against brooklyn how yeah, do you feel the, about that oh that's that's wonderful i especially <laughs> since you had the you had the stats to back it up like do you think i had 16 percent of their shots in my bag because i absolutely did not i didn't scurry off to cleaning the glass cleaning the glass <laughs> post game or anything like that so i love that you bring that anecdote also, uh, Pascal Siakam's block three-pointer came after they sniffed out a Spain pick-and-roll, blew it up, and the ball, uh, I guess what would the term be, funneled to the corner, and he blocked. I think it was Blake Griffin. Just a cool, yeah. fun little thing, of course. Uh, you brought up how, you know, it's the game in a nutshell. It is interesting uh, about the how it kind of transitions into their offense. The, and this really goes back to, why do they pull off the corner? What are they trying to do? And whether or not like it's, you know, it's a high stakes thing. It's a tight wire act. It's hard to do. Yes, of course. But why do they need to do it? Why can't they just rely on OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, Scotty Barnes, and Fred to guard their guys and to kind of limit that breaking point at the point of attack? Why do they not only want to stop plays, but they want to stop them in a way that supercharges their offense into transition? And I'm curious what you think about that, because I have ideas about the Cleveland game and I'll talk about that, but I'm curious what you think about how it went in the Brooklyn game. No, that, I mean, that's an excellent point. And I think too often I especially do this. I know other people probably do too. talk about one side of the floor in a vacuum. And you're absolutely right. Why do you want to make this defense, this perfect, impossible thing? Because that's the only way you can score efficient offense. Right. And so, how did it go against against uh, Brooklyn? Well, you kind of need to actually stop the rim in order to, to run. Uh, I think the current research says that missed layups actually do spark transition a lot, but missed threes are not linked to that. Is, am I right about that? Well, you think I have that off the cuff? Like I, what do you think I have those? I, I, I think no I think that's what reachers is. Yeah, I think missed layups end up more in transition than missed missed threes. In Toronto, actually, I, I think so. I'm pretty sure. In <laughs> uh, Toronto, actually, I mean Brooklyn took less than a quarter of their shots at the rim. I'm still on cleaning glass, by the way. <laughs> Which I mean, that's insane. That's like a crazy low number. They also made almost ninety percent of their layups. Like that's, they didn't miss. And so, you know, you're not going to get that easy offense if the other team doesn't miss at the rim. So if you are 
both giving up lots of corner threes and not protecting the rim, of course you're going to lose. Now, it doesn't help that you miss all your threes, right? There, there's other factors, but that's crazy. That means, you know, you have two goals defensively and you fail in both. So what is the point? That's a great question. I think Kem Birch would help a huge amount, especially in sort of making teams miss at the rim. Toronto just doesn't have a guy who can do that other than Kem Birch. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I think your larger point that even goes beyond Brooklyn is, is that worthwhile to sort of uh, chase perfection when the risk is so high? I don't know. I just, I think Toronto is trying to ask questions that we don't know if they've been asked before in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a great point you make is wh- why do it? You know, why do such a thing? And when we look at the Raptors offense, even with Pascal, who is, rounding into form is not fully formed yet you know he's coming off of a torn labrum a long layoff and surgery and you know rehab situation and eventually there will be nights where he just absolutely carries we saw it last season even in a season where a lot of people were you know bothered by his output I wasn't one of them but a lot of people were and there was a little bit of you know the three-point shooting wasn't there the same way it was the year prior but in some games, even then, in a down year to some people, he, he carried the Raptors, and that'll be there, you know, in some games this year. But they are completely dependent on transition opportunities, uh, supplementing slash buoying their half-court offense because that's what happened against Cleveland, and it's exactly what happened against Brooklyn. In the first half, the Raptors had everything going because they were playing a more pace-and-space offense Fred Van Vliet was playing like that wonderful combo guard style. He had 16 in the first half, you know, giving you great looks and second side action as a playmaker and relocating for threes and stuff like that and being a presence for spacing in other sets and stuff. It's It was awesome to see. But the transition they were getting was largely a result of the ball being in Kevin Durant's hands and Kevin Durant had seven turnovers, the Raptors running out the other way. In the second half against the Nets, James Harden slows everything down and you could send anybody at them and the Raptors did and they ran a pick and roll to get certain matchups, but they also just went straight ISO and James Harden was getting past the first line of defense causing rotation for corner threes or to get his own shot. And that was low turnover, slow pace basketball, and it completely crippled the Raptors on the other end. It's that that yin and yang, it feed, one feeds into the other. But against Cleveland, it's a little bit less, I would say, unforgivable because it's Darius Garland and one of Jared Allen or Evan Mobley who are cooking you. And that's probably the game I'd be upset about is that Darius Garland is is a talented young guard and a guy who I think will be good for a long time. But at the point of attack and particularly in the screen and roll, don't rely on the tagger. Don't rely on the rotation as much. There are some things you have to fight through. And the, the big man who's playing in that position playing that zone between the, the guy who's rolling or popping and the ball handler has to be sharper. So there, there's things to like and dislike, but the Nets, I think, put them in too tough a position, whereas I think they did let it slip away versus the Cavs. Yeah, it's I, I'm not sure if I totally agree with you because the numbers, like Toronto got almost 20 more shots than Cleveland. And Nick Nurse said their analytics um, basically says that five, if you get five more field goal attempts in the opponent that that's statistically you've a, a much bigger chance of winning 20 is crazy. And so 
I think a lot of the the maths, you can have small maths, right? Which is like corner threes versus at rim attempts. But the big maths actually worked out in their favor. They just happened to have very few free throws. They attend, they like shot all their shots from the mid-range, which was a lot better against Brooklyn. They um they were a little bit better at attempting threes, getting to the rim. So I think, I mean, the maths are something they're trying to game this year. And we're seeing it. And we're seeing bizarre uh teams, just like you said, able to defang them. Uh, right. You mentioned Brooklyn. Cleveland playing just, okay, well, ISO not turn it over. What are you going to do? The team that did that first against Toronto was Dallas, mm-hmm. right? Dallas in the second half said, we're going to just not pass unless it's like an assist attempt. Just Luka Doncic, Tim Hardaway Jr., do not pass the ball unless you are forced to. It's an open pass, and then that next one is a shot. And Toronto couldn't really do anything against it. And the worry is that's just more what playoff basketball is like. And so Toronto's entire math system, though fascinating, is almost defanged by what basketball becomes in the playoffs. And and like game. That's like when I when I talk about Cleveland, I don't mean I, I liked a lot of what they did in Cleveland. I I meant the the final stretch where Darius right, Garland. Right, right, yeah. yeah so, sorry, like they played out. I really and this is reflected in the reaction podcast. They played a really strong game against Cleveland that, as you say, bizarre styles defanged them down the stretch. Their half-court offense dried up. Well, Darius Garland, who does not cook every game, he he found a way to make lots of great shots and great reads out of the pick and roll. And that, you know, that's where the Raptors are at in the fourth quarter. But a lot of it was really good. And also, like, pressing them, getting those 20 extra shots, totally. Big maths versus the small sample size theater that wins from game to game, right? It's like your net yeah. rating the season over, your luck adjusted net rating and all that kind of stuff. Like, are you trying to build an analytical model or are you trying to build a team that finds a way to win, all that kind of stuff? And they're, they're not mutually exclusive or anything like that, but you can see where they kind of uh, diverge when we're talking about these types of games. Pascal Siakam, he comes back into the fold. I'll start off by saying, I praised his defense in the reaction podcast. Mm -hmm. I thought that he solved a lot of problems on that end. Of course, you know, they still end up losing and he was on a minutes restriction, but what did you think of Pascal's return? Oh man. It was unbelievable. He just, he totally undoes some of the issues that happen in the offense. Like he is a not untangler. Um, you know, he had a, an and a one finish scout. in the post. Yeah, he's a Boy Scout. Uh, <laughs> were you a Boy Scout? You seem like you might have been a Boy Scout. Uh, no, I'd, are there Boy Scouts in Canada? Hey, I have a friend uh, who was a Boy Scout, and he told me stories about this weird, like, uh, uh, night Boy Scout event where they have contests of not untying. It sounded like fun. Anyway, uh, he just, he does stuff that no one else does, right? And you, you've been talking a lot about this in your pods. You've been tweeting about it. I know this is not news to you, but exactly what you predicted is exactly what happened. I mean, he had a, an and one score in the post against Blake Griffin where he just, they didn't send help. And he had a nice little move, stepped to the side, went out around him and won. He just, his, uh, you taught me this actually. I'm just sort of quoting you for this whole this whole bit, I guess, um, his 
ability to release from different places. I mean, he can shoot from so many different places on his body and that allows him to score pretty easily against single coverage and no one else in Toronto has that ability. And I was just amazed by it. I mean, obviously he's not totally himself. He was on a minutes restriction, didn't get tons of shots. The young guys froze him out, which was kind of hilarious that he couldn't get a pass. <laughs> but I mean, he was, I was just so impressed by how he changed the texture of Toronto's offense. Yeah, the the moral panic that Pascal Siakam went through because of the reports that we talked about on our podcast earlier in the year about how, you know, whose team is this, mine or Kyle's, and kind of hand-wringing. And now he comes back and says, whose team is this, mine or Svee's? You know, like, because by the the way that these possessions are going, it seems to be Svee's team. Uh, Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, I thought it was awesome. Really, on that and one against Blake, anchored that pivot foot and moved moved a lot still kept it there kept his balance something that og i think really has trouble with og when he's not worried about pivoting he's just worried about going straight up super super strong but when he starts pivoting he moves his weight and his strength outside of his cylinder really fast and that means he falls away pascal siakam on some of his finishes particularly in the post can keep that weight that strength in the middle of his body while still moving around and being kind of agile. It's it's a very unique skill, a micro skill, but it's something that's absolutely in his bag. It's something I enjoy have, immensely. Have you ever seen the movie It Man? No. Okay, so It Man is about the, uh, just trust me, I'm going to bring it back here. Uh, it Man is about a style of Kung Fu that um, uh, I think that Bruce Lee, um, you know, made popular in Hollywood. Uh, it is uh, Wing Chun. And so Ip Man stars um, uh, Donnie Yen. And the entire idea of this uh, martial art is it's it's inside the tight spaces. You're seeing where I'm bringing this back. Yes. He just, he, he, as soon as he gets close, um, then that's when the, the, the art is able to be unfolded. And Pascal is like an, a Wing Chun isolation player. He just, in those tight spaces where he thrives. And OG Ananobi, for all of his strength, in those tight spaces is totally defanged, right? The, the two-inch punch, I'm just mixing my martial arts movies now. <laughs> he just doesn't have it, right? He, he's this wide space, wide stance guy, big strides. But if you just close the space, he loses his balance, loses his strength. I mean, it's interesting that, that Pascal and OG are so different in those ways. Mm-hmm. That's also, yeah, hell yeah, a Dune reference for you and I, the, the Dune nerds that we are. But like a lot of, if for people who have read the books, obviously it talks about how intimate and close quarters the fighting is there, uh, you mm-hmm. know, which also plays into your uh, Wing Chun thing. But also like in the movie, if you saw it, you know, it's close quarters, it's tight. You got to be fast in tight spaces. The long stuff, you know, it, it's going to get you killed. You can't come through like that. But anyway, yeah, Pascal, uh, offensively, uh, jump shot thoughts? Do you have any? Yeah, I, I mean, I really liked his first make. Um, his other attempt, I, I like the idea. Like an early clock shot when he's open, I have no problem with it. I think him shooting when he's open is a huge step forward from last season and something that I don't know why he stopped. He lost faith. I also was a little suspicious he took that other three because he was tired. 
Um, but the the idea behind it, I've I've nothing against. Yeah, the honestly, it, and it came on the little pet handoff play between he yeah. and Fred. The one actually that where Lewis Satsman affected the Raptors because of his conversation with Fred about, hey, uh, end of quarter plays, you know, like Pascal is shooting so-and-so, and Fred remarked, hmm, how interesting. And then we saw that play at the end of a quarter. Perhaps it meant something. Perhaps it meant nothing. Twice. Yeah, I, yeah, he was shooting six for six. I told Fred in the locker room before the game, he's like, oh, I'll just get him more attempts then. And he went over to that very <laughs> game, Pascal did, and I have never spoken to Fred since. Uh, that's not true. But, but yeah, that, that was, um, I affected them for the worse. <laughs> yeah that's you know that's actually maybe apropos right it's like we all have these delusions of grandeur that uh if they just let us make the decisions uh things would be pretty good and sometimes uh well actually probably most times that wouldn't be the case i guess people who make decisions at the nba level a lot of times have a track record or some sort of knowledge base something like that i keep hearing about uh seems to be meaningful but okay, uh, Pascal on ball, uh, some very loose dribbles, but also some yeah. deliveries of his body to the rim, conveying himself, uh, cascading all the way across the court. Uh, thoughts there? Yeah, you, you're totally right. Um, but the pros and cons, I think a couple times he sort of tried to create an advantage, couldn't, and just wasted like five or six seconds of the mm -hmm. clock. That's not going to work with this Raptors team. Like their strengths are quick quick decision-making that's where Scotty is good um, that's where OG is good and if you slow it down and can't create and just throw a grenade to Gary that's just that's where you're going to get into trouble at the same time like you said I mean his swooping cuts his swooping dribbles he got to the rim a couple times and I mean like no one else can get there right now on this team in isolation it's crazy how little rim pressure they're putting in games they're creating I mean, teams just aren't rotating. They're just, they're not respecting Toronto around the rim. And Pascal, if you do that to him, is going to kill you. He's going to score 40. If you don't rotate, if you don't like change your defense to stop him from getting to the rim, that's game over. He is that good. And that's something that they need. And so sure, he was a little loose. He didn't show it 40 times. Obviously it was just once or twice, but it's once or twice more than anyone else. It's also worth noting that he shouldn't be one of the high usage, high scoring players in the NBA that's currently going through the uh, terrible effects to their to their own personal statistics of the significant drop off in two point jump shot fouls and three point jump shot fouls because he was never a guy who was drawing a lot of those anyway. There are players who are currently going through withdrawal of some regard or of some sorts, I should say, in some regard. And uh, he, that probably won't be something he has to adjust to. And uh, because the dunk slash layup attempts are still, you know, registering around the same amount of free throw calls. I just know that Raptors fans have been kind of up in arms about free throws you know, in the last couple of days. So I'm just trying to satiate them by saying maybe more are coming by the way of Pascal. But yeah, the, the great thing you bring up, right, is that maintaining advantage, something that OG Ananobi hasn't been able to do against like closeouts and stuff this year. That's my biggest gripe. And you won't find me griping about much with OG, but OG is a guy, the ball comes to him and the defense gets to come to a point of rest instead of rotation anymore because he wants to settle into his ISO package. 
that he worked very hard on in the offseason. He has the size up. He has the dribble package he wants to do, but the defense gets set. There's no maintenance of, or there's no maintaining advantage there. So you can't keep the defense trying to catch up so that an even bigger advantage comes down the way. Pascal Siakam, for all the time that he's put in as a number one guy, a pseudo number one guy and a role player, that's something he's actually still very, very good at is maintaining advantage, keeping the ball moving, whether it's with him or without him. And so I'm excited to see that is a guy who can punish teams off the bounce because Fred does it as a three-point shooter. Gary Trent Jr. does it as a three-point shooter or a one dribble into an 18-foot guy. OG currently has done it as a catch-and-shoot guy. And basically nobody else on the Raptors has been able to maintain advantage and then bring that into rim pressure. That's the whole deal with Pascal, right? And especially with Fred growing as a playmaker, OG registering a little bit more attention from defenses and just overall more, I guess, attempts out in the open floor and plus Scotty. That looks like something that could be kind of a big deal. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing. I'm not sure if we've ever spoken about this before. Um, This may be sort of um, basic for you, but let's see. So I think advantage can be sort of parceled out into you create it, you extend it, or you finish it. And uh, OG has always been a good advantage finisher with that Mm -hmm. catch and shoot. Right. If you create space, he's just going to hit an open. And, and as a cutter, That's, like just a it, super high frequency finisher at the rim. Absolutely. Especially, you know, when it's two guys on one side, the ball gets swung, one defender, and then he cuts, and then it's just an, an uncontested mm-hmm. dunk. Right. That's that's extending and then finishing. I think what Siakam does well is advantage extension that OG doesn't in terms of those intermediary passes. Um, and what he sort of lost last year was advantage finishing. He mm-hmm. was a lot worse at finishing at the rim. His jumper fell off a cliff. That's advantage finishing. And it's rare you have a guy who can do all three. Right now, OG Ananobi is an advantage creator, especially in the post, and an advantage finisher as a cutter and shooter. He's not really extending it with those snap decisions. Siakam is an advantage creator, extender, and if his jumper comes around finisher, that's that's crazy that you can have a guy who does that. Barnes is an advantage extender right now, almost exclusively, but he's so good at it that he's just incredibly helpful. And so I think what we're really harping on as the, you know, the negatives for OG and Siakam right now, I mean, obviously we're talking about the positives as well, but the negatives we're really specifically referring to OG taking time to make decisions um, and, you know, Pascal as a, as a, as a finisher, um, those are the elements that the other is so good at, right? It's interesting if you could just merge them. And this is what we're talking about, tight spaces, wide spaces. They are really good at what the other is not. And you see it in like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, guys developing alongside each other years and years. It's almost logical that they'll become good at things the other isn't because they're on the floor so much together. Conversations with you are so wildly rewarding. What what a point to make. <laughs> oh, you brought that together beautifully, especially with the Tatum and uh Brown reference. Well done. Yeah, that's that's uh that's absolutely correct. And that's the thing too, is like, is Pascal on the precipice of you know bringing all three into the fold? Because once again, in this game, he uh well, he had, you know, 
the bunnies that didn't go in. That always yeah. went in. That always, always went in during his ascent, right? Like, yeah. and also something Scotty Barnes captured a little bit early on in the season. And still with the like mid-range jumpers and just how Scotty Barnes went from somebody nobody regarded as a scorer and had significant questions about it to the highest level or sorry, highest scoring rookie and without question is like these really janky bank shots, these high formed hooks that kind of get, get, you know, every inch of the rim and roll in lightly. It's like Pascal Siakam is getting every inch of the rim and rolling out for a year now. And he's exhibited touch on so many attempts over such a long stretch that you wonder it just, it will quit at some point. The, the missed bunnies will just start dropping in at a rate that everybody is comfortable with once again. It's something I don't want to worry about, but the longer it goes on, I wonder. Uh, do, you have, do you have any qualms or anything on that? No, I mean, you're, you play basketball at a high level. I don't know how often you talk about that on the pod, uh, but you nobody, did. Not, nobody, obviously. Needs, nobody needs to know. Not a high enough but level I, that it matters. But a high enough level that you would know this. I mean, I didn't play it nearly so high level, and I know this. The feel of a layup when it hits every part of the rim and rolls out feels like a make coming off the fingers, right? Like it, it feels like that layup went in, even when it doesn't. And that's not true on misses that don't do that. And so you, you hope the guy keeps doing the same thing when you miss like that for a year, like you said, just like, please, God, don't let that change his mindset. I mean, do you agree? Is that like, is that how you see it? I mean, you played much higher than I did. Well, that's, that's an interesting observation because I, I feel that as well when, because I'm not a super high level shooter, right? Like they, they were talking about how Steph Curry, he, even some of his makes, they qualify them as misses when he's doing practice. They need a, they need a certain percentile of make like on arc angle that it enters the basket. Like it can't touch rim. If it touches rim, that's not a make. That's like absurd for one, but people who don't play a super high level, which is, you know, both you and I, you know, if you get the, if you get every piece of the rim and it spits it out, you're like, this basket hates me. Not that your ball was always destined to miss, but that like through some terrible force of nature, the rim has chewed on your ball and spit it out with like a terrible distaste and cursed you as somebody who the ball it will not leave your fingers and enter the hole, like that type of thing. But you consider it like it was in the vicinity of the basket. Damn you. How dare you deny entry of my ball, like that type of thing. Uh, I don't know. I think that's probably a very personal thing to Pascal. So I, I couldn't say whether or not because I do fit in the same as you. Although there are there are shots that feel a lot better and they can miss and there are shots that feel bad that can go in. And maybe that speaks oh, yeah. to my level of a, a shooter and also the the nerve damage in my shooting hand that I, you know, ended up uh, getting. But, you know, confusing thing ha- things happen on the court when you're not as high a level athlete as like an NBA player. So I don't no, know. No, I played I, just to, I mean, I know that this is like the most detour thing, but we're always going to take <laughs> detours. I played pool at a fairly high level. And it was the same thing where I made shots like I know I made the shot. I can like I can play pool blind, like close my eyes and I can make shots and I know it went in and it just got spit out. 
and I played not at a professional level, but I, I'm, you know, I would win some games if I played some pros, um, not a lot, but some. And I, I, I think there is something to chance. There's an element of chance in any game like that. You know, the wider the court, the less like tennis, you're not going to have chance because the the chance of missing by an inch or not is extremely minimal. Whereas basketball pool, when the, the thing that you're putting inside of another thing are practically the same size, they're just chance has to play a part. Well, yeah, that, that is interesting too, is that you can, you can shoot it more in the center of the basket and miss than if you didn't shoot it as much in the center of the basket. Like yeah. There, there are some, and the arc of it, there are some funny dimensions, I suppose, but on a tennis court, uh, it's just going to be in or not, I suppose, is like a, a very interesting thing. Yeah, a- excellent point. Uh, should we leave the the Pascal stuff at the door? We've given him lots of time, which he deserves, of course. But uh, are you ready to walk away I'm ready. from the? Pa- okay, let's do let's do front court because you and I talked about it. Kem Birch, Precious Achua. Um, I think we had agreed that Kem was the best center on the roster, although in my prep. Like the when I wrote about every player on the roster, including the training camp roster, to start the year, I said that Precious Achua might be the high ceiling play, and I think that's probably the rationale between for why he was starting, uh, something to that degree. But I think there's been no doubt that Kim Birch has been the most effective center on the roster thus far, relative to that conversation or not relative to it. What have you thought about Kim Birch as the de facto center so far? I've been so excited for this, this very conversation because of that one we had before. I think Kim Birch was a place that we disagreed on. Uh, I was a little bit higher on Kim Birch than you were coming into the season, not to say you were low on him, but just, you know, as a matter of degree. And I think I have been correct on him. I mean, I checked in a week or two ago and I was like, Hey, Kim Birch playing pretty well. How do you feel trying to rub it in? You're like, yeah, it's basically what I expected. I was, I wanted to extend that. I wanted to save it for a podcast and we're on a podcast. So I'm curious, do you feel like you were a little low on Birch coming into the season? Or do you think that you hit it on the, on the head? See the, now this is the super interesting part, right? He is about what I expected. Does, does that make sense to you? So like, and, and you know me as somebody who we've uh, been on the podcast together and I've eaten crow happily. So I don't think oh, I'm we admit. afraid. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think I'm afraid of that. But do you think I'm missing something? Like, do you remember specifically maybe something? Well, you don't have to quote me. But like, what if you had to guess, what was I low on that I'm that he came in higher? Like, what where did I miss, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think you were... You said he was a good defender, not a great one. And I actually think he has been a great defender. Uh, I think specifically as a rim protector, um, I have more stats in front of me. I See, I prep for a lot of this. Uh, he, has held, he has held opponents to uh, just over 5% lower than their expected field goal percentage would be from within six feet. Uh, the best defenders, Rudy Gobert, hold players to about I think eight or 9% lower at the rim. 5% is excellent. That's a, that's a mm-hmm. very, 
very good for a def- for a center like not for anybody for a center that's he, very he good was, uh, he was like two or three percent last year if i remember correctly do you have that yeah there? yeah yep last year i think 1.7 negative yeah. 1.7 he held them below 1.9 um this year 5.4 that's really a big nice. gap yeah really nice it's not the number of contests and i mean number of contests are almost as important as that differential mm-hmm. because if you're contesting 15 shots at the rim a game i mean it's not a huge deal if you're holding them to five percent below or two percent below because you're there so much that's just huge and he's only contesting five a game like that's that's a little bit low especially for a center even though he's asked to switch and rotate and whatever uh, i think his rebounding has been exquisite the mm-hmm. team's rebounding has been amazing with him on i think his defense has been so good that it just doesn't work without him. I think as long as you have uh, OG, Pascal, Scotty Barnes, amazing though they are, their incredible skills won't be unlocked without Birch beside them. And that's, I think, the level of height that I had on him, the level of respect I had for his defense before the year. And I think that you uh, you needed to be proved. You didn't disbelieve it. You just didn't think you'd seen enough evidence to be sure. I think we still haven't seen enough evidence to be sure, but it, it still points in the direction of him being a great defender, no? Okay, yeah, those are great, great points. Uh, well done for the numbers and uh, recalling what I thought. The biggest thing that I probably should just eat is Kim Birch last year, I think, didn't have a big impact on the rebounding, even though yeah. his prior numbers over the course of his career suggested that he would. And so I was lower on that heading into this year than maybe I should have been. Closing out defensive possessions is a big deal. Extending offensive ones, not, not by you know advantage creation, but just resetting that shot clock to 14 with you know uh the ball in hand for your team is big as well so the rebounding i definitely would say so far into the season i was lower on him than i should have been the the contest at the rim still super low in volume but that goes right back into what we opened up this podcast talking about which is they are just pressuring the ball before they the paint touch is made before the attempt at the rim is made that's like they they want to suppress those shots and they are but that also means that you don't get to see as high volume of Ken Birch defending the rim altering shots all that kind of stuff as you said volume is just as important volume is important for everything it's why oh, i wrote yeah. about OG and said you know the pull up is nice in the regular season but or in the preseason, but there is literally nothing suggesting that this is a running trend. This could just be like a flash in the pan. So he still needs to be doing all the things that he was good at prior, not just hitting ISO jumpers and stuff like that. But uh, I, I've really enjoyed how he moves in the defense so far. It is better than I expected. So I, yeah, I would. What is it? We're like what? I guess eleven games into the season so far. I'd shake your hand and say you're well on your way to being correct or or having a better idea of Birch's game heading into the season than I did. I, I would say that and for it, sure. It's funny because our disagreement was actually extremely slight, right? If, if we were ranking him out of 100, we probably only differed by like two or three, maybe five points. Like it, it was a very small disagreement. 
And so it's hard to say if anyone was right or wrong. No, um, no, I'll take and, it. I'll take it. You know, I'll, I'll take looking the at the <laughs> looking at the on offs, though. They are a worst defensive rebounding team with him on the floor, which I would not have expected. That, he is a yeah. hundredth percentile offensive rebound on offs. 15% higher. They rebound more offensively with him on the floor, but a little bit worse defensive rebounding. That's crazy. I don't quite understand that, but that's what it says. We're, we're still operating in the, the early parts of the season. Like what 25 games is a pretty good place to start checking this stuff. Of course we work like this is our job. So we'll be yeah. checking in on this stuff. We're looking for new you know, a new angle to write about what, you know, what, what is happening so far? Of course, that's important. But for anybody who's looking for yourself, if you want to get like a real idea of where a player's headed for the season, 25 games in seems like a really healthy place to do it. Some people will tell you 12 or 13 uh, for team-wide stuff, but for player stuff, it's, there's a little bit more, I guess, more swings in there during a season, you know, trends come and go a little bit more in player style than, in uh, the play style of a team, but 25 games, maybe game 25, we come back and we check in on this. Seems like a good place. Uh, Do you want to depends on the thing too, right? Like rebounds happen a lot, you know, turnovers happen way less. So on offs for turnovers, a little bit less, you know, indicative. Anyway, please continue. Mm -hmm. Are you happy with the, the cam, the the attention that Kim has received? Do you want to move on to precious? Well, the one thing I would add actually about Kim Uh, His offense has been nice, right? It's been, he's set good screens. He's finished those floaters that he's always been good at. He's, he's hit the glass. I think, you know, we talk a lot about his defense, his offense. Clearly he's not a star. He's not, you know, building any huge advantages, but he's been quite solid and totally playable on that end. I think that's worthy of at least mentioning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, I still want the short roll passing to like come along in a significant way. And the, the finishing at the rim has left me wanting, although the, the folders, as you say, have been honestly dynamite. So that's, that's cool to see, but uh, yeah, like uh, just going up straight and being able to finish is such a huge thing for a big man. And he currently does not possess that. Does he have the athleticism to like tower over guys and get there? No, but could he stand to get a little bit better at like clearing space going up or recognizing when the pass out is there. That's, those are some things that I hope develop over the rest of the year, along with the short roll, because as you say, uh, the screen setting has been, I I would think quite good. So that means that he's a, one of the better options to clear space for, uh, for anybody who's on ball and B he's making a lot of good contact. And that means he can clear space so that he can kind of, you know, roll into the lane and then, you know, the defense rotates from there. You want to see a guy making good decisions. Uh, Yeah. Do you have any qualms with anything I said there? No, totally agreed, right? He's just not going to give you that traditional center play benefit on offense, which is like kind of why you play a center because they help so much on offense by being gigantic and just finishing at the rim. It's hard when your guy doesn't do that. It's hard to be a benefit without doing that as a center. Um, and so that's why I didn't want to go overboard and say he's been great. He's been playable, though, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think we disagree there. Yeah. And, like, the three-point shooting, 
there was never uh, any guarantee that that was something that was going to stick around. And it hasn't been or a huge indication focus. at all. Yeah. Not right. just guarantee. Like, why would you even think it might? Well, you know, there's some people really that basically a player comes to Toronto, a large part of the fan base says they'll make him into a three point shooter. And then they see like a game with one or two threes and they say it's here. Uh, and it's something we can now right. count on, which you know, maybe within the Raptors is a little bit overstated, but they've done it with a couple players, so I'm I'm not super mad at it. But uh, nothing on that front with Kim so far. Precious. The pr- uh, no, the, well, that's actually worth mentioning. The shooting program that is this famed thing, that's a four-year program, and mm-hmm. it involves a lot of work and practice, changing, I mean, which fingers you release on, changing that arc you mentioned. That's not something that, Kem could possibly have at this point after coming to Toronto so late last year. So, I mean, maybe he is in the program. I doubt he actually even is. That's something that they put guys like Norm, Pascal, Scotty, Delano. Like, I just, I don't see that being something they prioritize for Kem. And even if they had, wouldn't be where he would be right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent point. And that's that's something that, you know, was also something with Pascal was like when he was hitting so early on, Nick Nurse was like, yeah, he's got about 18 months to go still. And everybody's like, wait, but he's good now. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. we see lots of stuff we don't like all the time. And then, yeah. you know, and then he obviously had that season with bad shooting, but it's all coming around. Fingers crossed. OK, Precious Situa, the other, uh, let's say, I don't know, center, right? Like, you know, I think you can find him labeled as a small forward slash power forward um, with like fantasy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And he's not even labeled as a center, but he's a starting center in the NBA uh, for a 10 game stretch, I guess. So what have you thought of him so far? (sighs) What have I thought of him so far? I think Precious Achua has an unbelievable arsenal of skills none of which are developed, but things he's willing to try. And they are, you said this, uh, I think you messaged this to me during a game. He's going to be in the league for 10 years, not as a guy who's in the league for 10 years, like Danny Green or PJ Tucker, who's just so solid that they're just always in the league. I think he's going to be in the league for 10 years because every team is going to be like, maybe we will unlock the star, Precious Achua because he has those tools that if he were to get good at all the things he tries all at once, he would be a star. Uh, He has not been good at all those things thus far in Toronto. Doesn't mean he won't become good at them. I mean, I see the, I see the appeal. He is a, a clever passer. He can handle in the open court. He is a smooth finisher um, in space when he gets like a nice wide jump and sees where contests are coming from. His shot looks good. His shot looks very good. He can force turnover. There's stuff going on, but his inability to see rotations, to execute rotations, um, he can really like not, sometimes he'll try to get to the rim before the guy he's guarding has even decided to get there and just give up an open jumper. He will hijack offensive plays. His decision-making has been poor enough to make him one of the least valuable players on the team this year. So it's hard. I get why Toronto's starting him, right? If you put it together, he is one of the core pieces. 
so I get putting putting him in the starting lineup. I get giving him shots. I get playing him alongside the stars because hopefully you can develop and still win games. That's what they were doing until two games ago. Uh, it's it's a it's a very fine line to walk, and it's been a rough season for him. But that doesn't mean he isn't still an exciting player. Was that too critical? No, no. You brought up play. Well, you brought up advantage creation, advantage extension, and advantage finishing. And typically, like th- this is the let's say the Daniel Gafford of it all, the Mitchell Robinson mm-hmm. of it all. <laughs> yes, these springy bigs. Uh, typically what they can hang their hat on is like they'll finish at the bucket. And this is also something like a dear friend of the show, uh, the only guest writer on Minute Basketball so far, Joe Wolfond, via tweet remarked upon, like Precious Sachua as a big man, his true shooting percentage is 39%. And he, he said that's legitimately hard to do given the shot diet. And it is. Precious Sachua has been remarkably impotent around the basket as far as like finishing stuff is something you remarked upon in your piece about what the hell is happening with, you know, precious and Fred in the pick and roll what's happening here. And sometimes just straight up precious is botching opportunity. And as you say, can completely hijack offensive possessions in a almost mind numbing way. And on top of that, when his guy plays off of him seems to have no idea how to interpret the space afforded to him. And sometimes we'll just walk towards a ball handler on his own team and just crowd space. Perplexing stuff, but also like extremely fun and funny that this guy is out on the floor, just vibes, man, just moving around, trying to catch up with his buddies. Like, you know, it's, it's a confusing experience with Precious. But as you say, the complete package is tantalizing. And the Raptors are a team that, they want tantalizing. Like, why the hell wouldn't you go for it, right? They drafted Banton for a reason. Okay, you're a funky player. Let's see if we can access the funk more and more. That type of thing, right? An advantage creator from the center spot. What a wild and crazy choice, right? That's that's uh, as you absolutely and astutely pointed out, or Joe, who we love, right? He's not finishing plays. And you need that from a center. And, and the thing is, and this is why Toronto's small ball lineup is difficult to see as, you know, the death lineup, because who is that finisher as a center? Maybe Scotty Barnes. Like maybe Scotty Barnes is that center who just, he finishes everything around the rim. He sets screens. He passes on the short roll. It's possible. But, but Precious is not that so far, which, which has been disappointing. Given uh, given Scotty, I believe he has like an almost unprecedented level of putbacks relative to his shot diet. Like, I think it would be very difficult to find a player with a similar shot diet and a similar unassisted percentage as Scotty, like this many games into a career that's scoring as much as he has. So Scotty represents somebody who I think offensively can operate as the nominal five in a, you know, a death lineup, I guess. Right. And there'll never be another death lineup because Steph Curry is just whatever the hell he was. Right. And continues to be, but Scotty, as, as you say, like the short roll passer, the guy who sneaks in from the dunker spot can either take it off the bounce one dribble and go up or can catch the lob 
and will be, you know, a dribble handoff guy, all that kind of stuff. Uh, a shaker, a, a mover, a wheel greaser offensively. Uh, that stuff all exists for Scotty, but uh, it gets a little bit more complicated about like the defensive end. And then the defense, we talked about how, like, you know, if you play those five, the starting five that they played in the Nets game, uh, that defense gets so funky so quick because they'll just switch across everything in a blink. I remarked upon it on Twitter and in the reaction podcast is like, there's a Chicago action, which is a three person action offensively. And the Raptors switched every single one. So everybody swapped who they were guarding. And the Nets were just kind of like, oh, what the hell? This doesn't happen option. Like after the guy get the handoff, maybe then you see a guy switch it. But the Raptors were switching on the bottom guy as well. And then attacking the handoff from the bottom and then rotating over to cover the back end. So the guy didn't make like a basket cut. Just a lot of stuff happening offensively or defensively. Uh, So to move us away from Precious, did you do you see like a ceiling or anything of that sort with the Raptors five since we're there? I think their ceiling is given by discrete skills. Um, (laughs) You asked me the big question. I I give the small answer. But if OG Ananobi can can do what he has actually like not infrequently done to Jokic and done to Joel Embiid, which is. Um, okay, if you get it within three feet, you're going to score. That's fine. I can make up for that in many ways. I'll jump passing lanes. I'll strip you with the ball if, you, if you're dribbling on the perimeter. I will bang with you if you try to get post position. He just, the dude has like tree trunk legs and he will fight you for every inch you try to take in the paint. And so OG Ananobi, you know, might not be able to contest those guys at the rim which is traditionally what you want from a center defender, but he sort of steals enough in other ways that you can live with it. And so that's hard, man. That's like to fight a guy, to fight Joel Embiid for every inch of space he takes off the ball, like that is hard. You're not going to do that on like a Tuesday day game. Does such a thing exist when you went out the night before? Like nobody's (laughs) doing that in the NBA in the regular season, every game. That's insane. But so how, how high is their ceiling? Like how willing is OG Ananobi to just like kill himself every play on defense. And then when he's alongside Gary Trent, Pascal, Scotty, like to sort of not use any of that ISO package, he painstakingly put together his whole career. Similarly, how engaged is Gary Trent, not just getting steals, but like rotating properly, Xing out properly, like helping at the rim when he's the help, uh, like there are questions. And so I think U.S. ceiling, I think the ceiling is unlimited. They could be an elite defensive unit. Whether they can do that for more than four minutes at a time, difficult to say. Whether they can do that for 30 games, that's when I start saying, well, maybe not, right? So I don't think that's a long-term starting unit, probably a closing unit on certain nights and, and only like four minutes, three minutes. You're not you're not playing eight minutes of the fourth quarter like that. Honestly, great point. And they seem like a team, you know, maybe a year or two down the road, if they're, you know, you start getting maybe, maybe into the top half of the Eastern Conference. If Kim has stagnated, then maybe you start looking for one of those super, uh, you know, undervalued centers who plays 26 minutes a night, right? And if they're real, like the Zubots, 
the Valanchunas, the Rashawn Holmes, something like that. Those guys, you let them take that insane heavy load of going center to center for so many games a season. And then if you can move away from it, you do. If they're on a roll and they're adding that punch offensively and defensively, you run with it, but they take a lot of the brute force out of those games. But yeah, the the point you make is a very good one because we have yet to see a team lean into that and not crumble from just the absolute, the sheer toll of dealing with even a guy like Montrez Harrell, who isn't one of the Titans of the NBA dealing with him centers like dealing with Montrez Harrell uh, power forwards do not like he is just the, yeah. the Tasmanian devil and Joel Embiid, Jokic, whoever, right? Like these, these Titans of the, of the bigs are, you just can't contend with that. Not night in and night out. And Ken Birch, when he had a shot against Harrell was clearly still extremely hindered from his, you know, his time in the, um, his time off the roster injured, mm-hmm. uh, so I have no, I think Ken Birch would be totally fine going up against Harold. Now that game was, a, was just a fluke that he did so poorly, but yeah, I mean, if you start Scotty or OG or Pascal against, against Harold, you're in for a tough night. And that's crazy. Like that's not how you want to play basketball night in and night out. So I agree with you. I completely agree with you that that is a, a team with a high ceiling or a lineup with a high ceiling but a very limited ceiling, a thin ceiling, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, at the very least, it seems like they've discovered a ceiling, right? Like, like that's the thing is yeah. they talk about it all the time in the most meaningful games. What's the best lineup and how dominant can your best lineup be? I think that's like really cool. And the Raptors, they did win a championship playing quite a few different lineups and being adaptable, like, Surgeon, Surgeon Mark played game seven together against the 76ers and played a lot of that series together and they won those minutes. And they also played smaller against the, like they split them up against the Warriors, for example. So, you know, versatility is very good if you have the pieces on the roster, but if you don't have all the pieces, having at least one dominant lineup, which it looks like the fruit, you know, the seeds of that are there with this starting five. Uh, that's a good find at the very least, but not a sustainable one. Maybe would be exactly. a good way to put it. Yeah, there, there's a reason why the Warriors started Andrew Bogut and Festus Azili. Like they know what they're doing. That's not mm-hmm. random that these guys who are not their fifth best player are starting games. And the Raptors, I mean, the that team that lineup, I think, really interesting. What's their ceiling on offense? Because Scotty mm-hmm. Barnes and Pascal Siakam are really interesting to fit together. And that's one thing that I really enjoyed watching this Nets game. Um, Barnes and Siakam need extremely subtle ways to work together because Siakam's not a great roller yet. Barnes isn't a great initiator in the pick and roll. You know, OG Ananobi may be your best off-ball shooter other than Fred, also maybe your best screener. And so it's 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 interesting to see what that lineup might become because guys do need to improve in certain areas. Well, it was interesting. You bring up, uh, we, you and I have lamented Pascal, how he operates as a roller in the pick and roll. And even late in the game, he went to the free throw line because he went out without using like a pound dribble that he could use for a jump stop and then dunked in the lane. Cause he doesn't have the pacing as a roller, whether it's like yeah. showing to be available for the pass or his steps he takes after receiving it. It's just like, 
man, if OG had caught that pass, he would have used like a gather step and like collected the dribble and then dunked it. And it's just like that comfortability in that. But yeah, offensively, and th- this is where your point about they grew differently because of course they did, Pascal and OG. And of course, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum grew differently. Like that, you wonder if Scotty and Pascal are sharing so many minutes, does it start to impart upon Scotty's development in a major way? Are those, you know, are snug pick and rolls with Scotty shooting mid-range jump shots suddenly like a huge part of Scotty's career, whereas if he were drafted by the Magic instead, that's just something he never does, right? Like, that's fascinating to me. Totally. I'm, uh, I just finished a book. <laughs> this is off the rails. I just finished a book by Jeff Vandermeer. Have you ever heard of Jeff Vandermeer? I have not. He wrote the Southern Reach trilogy, which they just turned the first one into a movie, uh, Annihilation. Um, but I'm reading his newer books, uh, and I just finished Born. And it's this sort of sci-fi dystopian thing. But, uh, and I think they're making this into a movie now, so no spoilers. Um, there's this whole concept of uh, this monster that is sort of adopted as a child, so to speak, by a fairly good person in it in this apocalyptic world um, grows up to wonder, am I a monster? Am I a person? You know, what's it, it's nature nurture, right? But in this extremely um, high stakes world and what is your nature uh, and what is changeable based on the species that you end up with? Like what's fate? And that's, so this is in my mind because I, read like 200 pages of that book yesterday. But that's really what we're talking about. What's fate for Scotty Barnes? Who is he fated to be? And what can Toronto build into the genetics? It's fascinating. I Sometimes I love basketball on the most discreet level. and But sometimes I just wish I could peek four years ahead. Just like, just whisper behind the curtain and see, oh my God, that is what that guy is four years from now. It's so interesting to speculate. And I just saw it's, the answers would just be fascinating to have. Alas, time does not work like that. It's a really long answer of saying that you read 200 pages in a day, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, humble just, brag. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Okay, uh, final, by the way, fantastic answer. Uh, neither you or I have it, obviously. Like, you, your answer was posing the question like, hey, yeah, you're right. What the hell is going to happen? And the only thing I can respond is agreed. Like, what the hell is going to happen? Can't wait to see it. <laughs> uh, Utah Watanabe, a favorite of yours and a favorite of mine. We, I love his game. I know you do too. Talk about the discreet, you know, celebrate a guy who's maybe the, he owns the best closeout in the NBA, perhaps. Like he, he, he does so many fun little discreet things on the court that I just can't wait to see him, particularly in this lineup, right? And uh, well, not in this lineup, but in this context on this team. Between Banton, Svi, uh, you know, Lesser, like Malachi Flynn, Isak Bonga, if he gets into a game, is there anybody you think is uh, going to be kind of, I guess, disaffected by his return into the lineup? Or do you think that Utah is there's nothing guaranteed for him once he arrives, you know, healthy. I wish there was something guaranteed for him because he deserves it Mm -hmm. in terms of how much he's developed. But what the team is asking for him 
in terms of structurally is so, I mean, almost unfair because look at it this way. Last year, they said, look, you're a great defender. What we need right now is you to become a great shooter. And he wasn't, and he became one. And now he's a great shooter. Now he's going to come back from this injury, said, okay, look, you're a great shooter. That's awesome. But now we need you to be a second-side attacker, a ball handler. Like, he was a 3-4 last year. They need him to be a 2 if he's going to get minutes, right? He needs to take minutes from Svi, like you said. And Svi, for all of his limitations on the defensive end, rises up as a shooter, jets around screens. I mean, he, he attacks off the bounce, which you wrote about after preseason. And if Yuta, I don't, if he can't offer a, at least a simulation of that, I'm not sure if he is guaranteed anything. It's unfair, right? He did what they asked. He became a shooter. And I still don't think it's guaranteed that he gets minutes. That's a great point. How odd is it that he played that position last year? Like the position that people have been shoehorned into on the Raptors for years and years, like that three, four guy who defends and like they teach to shoot threes. Like a Malcolm you mean Miller. What they thought Norman Powell was. <laughs> yeah, right. Like Terrence Rott. They yeah. Yeah. Alfonso yeah. McKinney, Malcolm Miller. Yeah, like every guy that they brought through like that. That's like even Jordan Lloyd to some degree. They're like, come on, buddy, this is what we want from you. Now they're <laughs> now they're saying you need to steal minutes and roll from Svi and Malachi Flynn. And Yuta Watanabe, to his credit took on some of those responsibilities with Team Japan in the Olympics and yeah. showed out quite well. Now, you know, and this is something he admitted, this is something he's looking to, well, not admitted, commented on. Yes, very shameful of you, Utah. But something he commented on is that this is something he's looking to apply at the NBA level, that he knows his skills are higher than what he was applying. So he's going to see what he can reach. But that, that is a great point, is like the context of this roster is not kind to him if, if you put him on last year's team after the steps he took as an olympic athlete um you know maybe he does even better maybe he steals even more of paul watson's minutes or something like that but yeah at the very least the same way that svi when he gets like attacks a closeout he can like jump stop in the lane and find a guy and make a pocket pass or he can reject a screen and find a pass down the down the line like that stuff is all super important when he does it on the raptors and yeah. If Utah showed any of that, I think the minutes would be his. But God, it's it's tough. It's tough for him. Yeah. And it's frankly, I, I think Utah is a better player, right? Mm -hmm. I think the gap on the defensive end is just unbelievable how much better Utah is. But just what the team needs, I right now, it's more of what Svi gives. And I will get frustrated watching him, you know, uh, not preempt what's going on on defense. And, and so that's, you know, kind of waste what his unbelievable defensive partners are doing on that string. That will be frustrating. But what would be more frustrating is 15 minutes a game where the Raptors don't have anyone who can maintain or finish an advantage to get back to that. And Svi does do those things. Mm -hmm. He maintains, he's finished, he finishes. And so, you know, Utah Watanabe right now on off on offense is purely an advantage finisher as a shooter as a cutter mm -hmm. he needs to extend and that's hard yeah it, it's really hard like you look at teams in the playoffs that they they play that heliocentric style and you know like luca trey lebron 
who was more valuable than the guy who took the three-point shot that was available to them and put the ball on the floor and actually got to the rim. And it just, you felt the pressure of the offense completely release because defenses, it feels like after so many years of adjusting to what the NBA was doing, especially with how corner heavy, you know, these offenses have become, they started telling those standstill three-point shooters, like, you got to put the ball on the ground. Like Damari Carroll, who was so valuable for those 60-win Hawks, just does not do well in today's NBA. It couldn't possibly, because I think the schemes and defenses have caught up to it, quite frankly. And so guys who could just be 3 and D now have to extend past themselves and transcend that a little bit. Well, that's how fast the league has changed. I mean, mm-hmm. how many guys were brought into Portland, say, to do exactly that around right. Dame? They're like, okay, we, we need a shooter. We get a shooter in the offseason. And then by the time the league starts, it's like, oh, actually, we need a lot more from you. And they washed out. How many guys washed out of Portland, out of Dallas, right? Out of Houston when Harden was there. Just the, the number of players who have been asked to do one thing when they're brought to a team and then needed to do another when the games start is uncountable. And I worry that that'll happen to Utah. That Well, that's the whole thing. And this is, you know, this is really our shit, Lewis. But, like, Eric Gordon can shoot 22% from three, mm. but you need him on the floor. And Daniel House can shoot 40%, but, like, you're going to play Eric down the stretch because he can yep. just he'll give you that little bit of oomph, you know? That's exactly it, man. Er- Eric Gordon would immediately play 20 minutes a game on this Raptors team and have so many fans crying foul, but ultimately it would be necessary. Oh, he would be so good on this Raptors. Eric Gordon would be almost a panache. Like he'd be everything (laughs) for this Raptors team. A Sal. He'd be huge. Yeah. He'd probably be in the closing lineup. Yeah. That wouldn't surprise me whatsoever. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Eric Gordon hours uh, for real. Okay, uh, anything else you want to talk about as far as the Raptors? Uh, there was one thing I was hoping. It doesn't need to be long. Uh, Fred Van Fleet, man, like, I know probably this is something everyone's talking about every day after every game. But, like, what a, what a guy to have done. He, he, we talk about how the game changed, right? We just mm-hmm. mentioned this in the last segment. The game changes around people. And Fred has always until this into this very day kept up with all of it it's wild right it's he was he was a daryl morey player where all he took were layups and threes and now he's adding a mid-range game now he's adding pick and roll creation like it's just crazy how much he has added to his game and without him frankly like there's a reason why he leads the nba in minutes because toronto is nothing without him right now mm-hmm yeah, I, I didn't feel as much of a need to comment on Fred. I, I don't know if you listened to last week's episode, but he got a lot. I, I was yeah. like, let me give him yeah, his yeah, flowers yeah. because... But yeah, that's a great point. It's like, not only is this a guy who is doing the classic carry job that we saw last year, but he deserves a ton of credit, not just because of, you know, he was a guy who improved his skills, but he did at the behest of himself and the league. The pressure was coming from more than one area and he's continued to make his game more varied while also not losing a single thing. And that's like the interesting part, right? Is like Fred 
some people can, you know, you can hand ring about what he's trying to do offensively. Sometimes I do get that. But OG Ananobi, for example, is like when you watch in that Boston Celtics series, OG pops and he sees that he can attack a closeout. He gets downhill and then he finds a cutter on the move for a three-point shot. That's that advantage extension. Now with this, he's implemented these new skills. He pops and a guy attacks him. He wants to, okay, settle into an ISO situation. It's never, ever leaving the good parts of your game. And I think Fred has done such a good job. And it was also evident in that first half against the Nets is like, he'll return to all the things that he made his bread and butter on immediately if afforded to it. And he'll also yeah. give you everything new. And that that's just extremely intelligent application of all the things he's got going on. He, he's been immense. I can't say enough good things about Fred so far this year. That's all. I mean, I know, I know you've talked about it. That's all. I just felt, I mean, as long as we're going to be talking about this, this advantage conversation and the, the changing of the league, I just thought it was apropos to mention how, how worthy he's been. <laughs> hard to do really, really hard. to. He's been up against it uh, at every single turn and He's, he's won each time. It's pretty, pretty astounding. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. That's all. So no, now I'm happy. Okay. Had, had to get a little Fred in there. Cause you know, cause he's a good player Always. And, and we know how you feel about Fred. Well, how most people feel about Fred, you know, extremely conscientious, wonderful man who also happens to be really good at basketball. Good for pretty, him. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Okay. Uh, Lewis, before we get out of here, is there anything you'd like to plug? To plug, uh, I will have an extremely exciting OG Ananobi piece coming out soon. Uh, that's pretty much all. Stay tuned for some words on OG. Um, I cannot wait. I can't wait either. Uh, with bated breath, I would say. Uh, just to kick off where we started this conversation. That wasn't recorded, but... With bated breath, I wait for that uh, that OG Ananobi piece the same way you waited for my Zoom invite link. <laughs> yes. All right. Lewis, thank you so much for coming on, brother. I look forward to these. They, they're like manna in the desert for the, the wandering Israelites. These pods with you are always so much fun, dude. Manna in the desert for the wandering <laughs> Israelites. I... <laughs> Who else could I bring on that would have these pulls? Okay. Uh, you know, I, I remember, I, you know, I impressed you by almost perfectly, uh, I guess, emulating the soundtrack to Inception off the top of my head and uh, giving you, uh, you know, this really uh, esoteric Bible verse. And you return it all a thousand times over with uh, far more esoteric things that just, they, they tickle that part of my brain that I just enjoyed so much. So, these conversations, the same way for you, uh, just fantastic for me. Thank you, Lewis. Yes, sir. All right, listener, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and I bet you did. I'm feeling confident that you did. Thanks for tuning in, whether you got into it in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and goodbye.